Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, Horizontal Federalism and Contemporary Constitutional Controversies, examines the equal powers given to states through the U.S. Constitution and what happens when a state enacts policy that has consequences beyond its borders. This entails understanding the legal boundaries of state-to-state borders and how they intersect with each other. Professor Alan Erbson explores how the Supreme Court itself has struggled with establishing legal doctrine regarding how one state's laws may put restraints on neighboring states, and the roots for this instability in modern doctrine are embedded in the U.S. Constitution's design. This lecture is a part of the Popham, Hike, Snowbridge, Lindquist, and Venom Professor of Law Appointment Lecture. A video replay of the entire event is available on the Minnesota Law YouTube channel. This event was recorded on April 6, 2023. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School. For more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Since this is a chair lecture, I thought it would be interesting uh, to discuss a few big picture ideas which have permeated my scholarship since I arrived at the law school in 2005, rather than the nuances of one specific article or one specific doctrinal area. So I'll be focusing on a topic that is fascinating from an intellectual perspective, mysterious from a doctrinal perspective, and extremely important from a practical perspective. And that topic is federalism. But it's not the aspect of federalism that most lawyers think about when they hear that word. When lawyers think about the word federalism, they tend to envision the relationship between the national and state governments. So they think about congressional power under uh, Article One and the Necessary and Proper Clause and Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, or they think about state prerogatives and immunities under the 10th and 11th Amendments. And when they consider these issues, they perceive the federal-state relationship as hierarchical because that's what the Supremacy Clause says. And as a result of that hierarchy, the term that's often used to describe federal-state relationships is vertical federalism. Now, the concept of verticality is a little bit misleading because states are not subordinate to the federal government across the board, but it's a useful framing device as long as we don't put too much weight on it. But I'm not gonna focus on vertical federalism today. Uh, instead, I'm gonna focus on the often overlooked horizontal dimension of federalism that describes interstate relations in a federal system. And horizontal federalism problems arise because of two features of the Constitution that we tend not to think about, but that are extremely important. The first is that all states are equal, and the second is that there's no rule for allocating power uh, between them, or at least no clear rule. So let's start with equality. All 50 states have the same status under the Constitution. They have the same powers. We don't say that Minnesota is more state-like than North Dakota because Minnesota is more populous. Anything that North Dakota can do, Minnesota can do. Anything that Minnesota can't do, North Dakota can't do, they're equal. They have the same status. And because of that equality, they exist on the same plane of authority. And that's why we describe uh, interstate relations as being horizontal as opposed to federal-state relations, which are vertical. 
Now, recognizing that states have equal power requires us to think about how to allocate decision-making authority and regulatory authority between them. And the Constitution is remarkably vague with respect to allocation. So think about the Tenth Amendment, which is a, an important source of guidance about state authority. The Tenth Amendment says that powers not allocated to the national government are reserved to the people and to, quote, the states respectively. But the states respectively often do not respect each other. And when they don't respect each other, there has to be some rule for resolving disputes. So if one, state's if one state enacts a regulation that has spillover effects in another state, or if two states regulate the same subject or the same person in inconsistent ways, there's going to be friction between the states. And there has to be some mechanism for resolving that friction. There has to be some institution that can say, this state has power, this state doesn't. Or when there is a clash between uh, state positions, one side prevails over the other. But the Constitution offers practically no guidance on how to resolve those kinds of disputes. So that void, that lack of guidance, is the focus of my scholarship. Essentially, I begin where vertical federalism inquiries end. So analysis of vertical federalism asks the question, can states exercise power X? I ask a different question, the follow-up question. If states in the aggregate can exercise power X, how do we decide which states can exercise that power in particular circumstances? And that's a question that's guided several of my articles. And I won't go through each article here. Instead, I want to highlight some of the central insights of my scholarship. So the remainder of the talk will have three components, an abstract discussion, a concrete illustration, and some observations why all of this matters. So first, I'll outline the abstract framework I developed for analyzing horizontal federalism problems. Then I'll discuss a hypothetical scenario which gives you a concrete illustration of how this framework operates in practice. And finally, I'll explain why the framework could be helpful for understanding issues that are currently pending before the US Supreme Court or that will soon be at the court's doorstep. So the framework uh, that I developed began with a question that guided my research. So this was the, the, the original question. How does the existence of multiple states with equivalent powers limit the authority of each state when more than one has a plausible entitlement to act? Right, that's a big picture question that you don't see asked very often, uh, but it spins out in all sorts of interesting directions in a wide variety of contexts. And I approach that question differently than most courts and scholars. So conventional accounts of horizontal federalism tend to focus on specific constitutional provisions or on specific fields of law. So a court might simplify an issue by positing, this is a due process problem, or a full faith and credit problem, or a commerce clause problem, or a privileges and immunities problem. And by pigeonholing the problem into that narrow category, much complexity is removed and we can focus on a specific subset of uh, doctrinal tools. And courts can further simplify by subdividing different doctrinal problems by the substantive area in which they manifest. So a court might say, well, we have one body of due process doctrine for personal jurisdiction and another body of due process doctrine for choice of law, 
and another body of due process doctrine for assessing the constitutionality of state taxes. And the combined effect of focusing on clauses and focusing on substantive fields is that many distinct silos of doctrine emerge that obscure common themes. Right? Doctrine is packed into these little almost structures, call them silos, and they're scattered across the landscape and no one is really thinking about the bigger picture that these silos create. Everyone's focusing on what's in each silo. And scholars, for the most part, tend to focus on particular clauses or particular fields. So that's what they teach, that's the focus of their research. This conventional emphasis on narrowly defined areas of law actually makes a certain amount of sense. I'm not saying it's indefensible. Right? The study and practice of law, as the students know, um, tends to focus on discrete issues. We don't offer a class in law. We offer classes in tax law, environmental law, constitutional law, property law. Likewise, when litigators and courts analyze cases, they don't use every case as an opportunity to engage with large meta-theoretical questions. They're trying to find established principles of law that can be mechanically applied, hopefully, uh, to resolve particular problems. They want to make precise arguments keyed to narrow rules. So it makes sense that we would take the field of horizontal federalism and chop it up into smaller components. But there's a cost to that fragmentation. And the goal of my scholarship is to highlight those costs and to suggest ways of avoiding them. So what are they? What are the costs? There's many. Uh, I'll outline two that are especially important. First, the framers of the Constitution often did not think in terms of how particular clauses uh, addressed specific problems. If you go back and read the Federalist Papers, if you look at debates in the ratifying conventions, there are some mentions of, well, this problem would be resolved by that clause or this problem would be resolved by that clause. But often what the framers were doing is saying, we created a constitutional order with many moving and interconnected parts, and the, in the aggregate, everything that we created will, can be used to give you a sense of what the relevant principles are that will be brought to bear to solve particular problems. And they knew that interstate disputes would arise. Interstate friction has been with us since the founding. So the framers' emphasis on the big picture means that modern fragmentation of jurisprudence into silos, into sort of little McNuggets of law, obscures the full implications of the Constitution's design. We're not bringing all of the resources to bear that we could. Second problem is that fragmenting doctrine into silos obscures patterns that connect ostensibly distinct problems. So as I'll explain in a moment, many horizontal federalism problems have a similar structure. And that similar structure suggests the possibility of common cross-cutting solutions. But common solutions are difficult to find if each problem is arbitrarily confined to its own silo off on its own. If a judge is looking over here and over here in a different case, no one is looking for the connection between them. No one is looking at the common ground. So given these deficiencies in the conventional approach to horizontal federalism, how can courts devise uh, a better approach? So what I've done is analyze all of the uh, distinct silos of horizontal federalism doctrine to find common themes. 
And then I've explained how focusing on those themes can lead to better decision making. And my central insight uh, is that all of the distinct silos of horizontal federalism doctrine rely on a blend of three types of argument. And each type flutters in and out of prominence from context to context, and even within the same context over time. And I like alliteration, so I refer to these types of arguments as capacity, constraint, and centralization. So what do I mean by capacity? Well, the focus here is on the scope of a state's regulatory power. And a euphemism for capacity that you're probably more familiar with is sovereignty. So the question courts ask when they're dealing with states, which are not really sovereign actors in the way that nations are sovereign, but have some vestiges of sovereignty, is are states sovereign enough to exercise a particular power? And capacity arguments tend to be very muddled. For example, courts will try and link the scope of a state's power to the extent of its territory. The idea seems to be that lines on a map, border lines, are tools that courts can invoke uh, or concepts that courts can invoke to limit the scope of a state's authority. And that argument obviously has some intuitive appeal. So everyone would agree that the Minnesota legislature can set the tax rate for sales of goods in Stillwater. But it would be odd if the Minnesota legislature also attempted to set the tax rate for sales of goods in Hudson, just across the border from Stillwater. Right? So borders obviously have some uh, intuitive role to play um, in thinking about the limits of state power. However, lines on a map are misleading. When you look at the map, they're pretty, they're bold, they might be in a different color than everything else on the map. They create the illusion of legal relevance. But in reality, they function more like lane markers on a swimming pool. So just as water can flow beneath the marker that delineates the distinct lanes that you're not supposed to cross, but that children will cross uh, uh, automatically, uh, just as the water flows beneath the markers, in an integrated national market, regulations will flow across state borders and have ripple effects. And at some point, those ripples become waves, and those waves become constitutional problems. So that's, that's what I mean by uh, uh, arguments based on capacity, thinking about the scope of a state's power, uh, the extent of its sovereignty. Well, what about constraint? Well, arguments that invoke constraint posit the existence of rights or immunities that limit state authority. So even though the state might nominally have capacity to act, there's some right or immunity that constrains that capacity. And I refer to these constraints uh, as horizontal rights. In other words, these are rights that are linked to geography. What does that mean? Well, imagine a Minnesota resident defrauds another Minnesota resident. This, this, uh, uh, this bad actor, this person who's engaged in fraud, would prefer not to be held accountable for their conduct. They don't want to be sued. But we would never say that they have a constitutional right not to be sued. But we might say that they have a constitutional right not to be sued in Wisconsin if all of the conduct occurred in Minnesota. So the right to contest personal jurisdiction is a right that makes sense only in geographic terms. And that's why I call it a horizontal right. More generally, there's a wide variety of constitutional rights uh, that make sense only in the context of a multi-state union. 
for example, the right to travel between states or the right not to be discriminated against on the basis of one's state of residence. So that's what I mean by constraint. Well, what about centralization? Well, when courts invoke arguments that rely on the idea of centralization, they're essentially saying that the existence of national power, central power, uh, is a check on overreaching by states. So rather than contending that a state lacks sovereignty, the argument goes that, well, the state possesses sovereignty, but the federal government has exercised power in a way that overrides the state's assertion of sovereignty. Sometimes centralization arguments apply in reverse. So a court will note that Congress could have, if it wanted to, preempted state action, but for whatever reasons chose not to do so, and that decision not to act constitutes implied acquiescence to whatever the states are doing, which is a thumb on the scale of allowing the states uh, to uh, continue uh, uh, to act in the way they've been acting. All right, so what's the payoff from identifying these three different kinds of arguments? How can we improve decision-making by viewing horizontal federalism jurisprudence as encompassing this mix of arguments based on capacity, constraint, and centralization? Well, I think there's many benefits, but uh, here I'll focus on four. So the first uh, benefit is that in many instances, the Supreme Court's decision to rely on capacity or constraint or centralization is arbitrary. So a given silo of doctrine might prioritize one of these types of arguments, often capacity, for historical path-dependent reasons, even though it would make more sense to rely on a different argument. So one of the insights of my approach to horizontal federalism is that a lot of the doctrinal incoherence that scholars complain about when they analyze leading Supreme Court cases can be explained as stemming from a poor fit between the relevant constitutional values that should animate resolution of a particular question and the form of argument on which the court is relying. So many doctrines could be improved if a court stopped and asked itself, why are we relying on capacity when we should be relying on constraint? Or why are we relying on constraint when we should be relying on centralization? Or why are we relying on centralization when we should be relying on capacity? Second, in many situations, courts rely primarily on one of these three forms of argument instead of balancing insights from all of them. And so the results that the court reaches are often unconvincing because the court is essentially looking at one piece of a very complicated puzzle and trying to extrapolate an image from that one piece. It's almost like trying to create, you know, trying to. Uh, uh, do a puzzle when you're missing some of the pieces and you don't have the picture on the box, and then you have to try and visualize what the picture might end up being. Decisions would be improved, therefore, if judges were conscious of the fact that if they're relying on capacity, there's also constraint and centralization arguments that might cut the other way, uh, and vice versa. So all three styles of, uh, types of argument uh, can be profitably consulted. Third, in some situations, courts fail to rely on any of the three forms of arguments that commonly appear. So these cases have an I know it when I see it approach uh, to horizontal federalism problems that is extremely malleable. And so the benefit of recognizing that in most situations, courts rely on some combination of capacity, constraint, and centralization is you become attuned to the fact that in a particular case, the court is relying on none of these things, or at least not relying on any of them uh, in a way that articulates a clearly discernible principle. So one can find 
um, a lack of rigor in judicial decision-making if one knows what to look for. Finally, uh, distilling complex problems into these three basic building blocks creates opportunities for comparing different areas of law. For example, suppose that there are five silos of doctrine that all rely on the idea that states have a limited capacity to act. One thing that we can do is look at each of those silos, look to see how the court employs the doctrine, and ask, is the court being consistent? Is the court saying something about state sovereignty in one context that differs from what it's saying about state sovereignty in another context? And would there be any value in clearing up uh, that or cleaning up that inconsistency? And so that could lead to merging several distinct er you know, fields of law into one or taking multiple tests and combining them in some way uh, that produces more defensible results. So these four benefits of my framework uh, may seem clear, uh, but the discussion at this point has been abstract. So let me give you a concrete hypothetical scenario that illustrates uh, the potential value of taking my approach uh, to horizontal federalism problems. So suppose that the Minnesota legislature is concerned about the favorite object of law professors, the widget. So, I have never seen a widget, never laid eyes on one, but I discuss them extensively in class. And you probably all have an idea of what a widget looks like. So assume that Minnesota lacks a domestic widget industry, but there are manufacturers of widgets elsewhere in the United States who sell them over the internet nationwide, including to consumers in Minnesota. These sales create at least three problems that the Minnesota legislature wants to address. First, widgets are dangerous. So Minnesota consumers are being injured by poorly made widgets. Second, widgets are produced in factories that emit toxic substances, which can be a harm to Minnesotans, depending on where the factory is, or just a harm uh, generally. And third, many widget sellers are not collecting and remitting sales taxes to the state of Minnesota. So Minnesota cares about safety, it cares about emissions, and it cares about taxes. And to address these concerns, the Minnesota legislature enacts a statute that has four key sections. Section one allows Minnesota consumers to sue widget manufacturers under Minnesota's common law of products liability. And Minnesota uh, uh, courts can entertain these suits and plaintiffs can rely on Minnesota law even if the widget was not manufactured in Minnesota and even if the widget complied with the safety standards of the state in which it was manufactured. That's section one. Section two prohibits retailers from selling widgets in Minnesota uh, that were manufactured in factories that produce uh, toxic emissions, that don't comply with the specified set of emission standards. Section three compels out-of-state widget sellers to collect and remit Minnesota sales taxes. And section four subjects defendants in suits under sections one to three to personal jurisdiction in Minnesota courts. So to summarize, the statute addresses choice of law, it addresses emission standards, it addresses tax collection, and it addresses personal jurisdiction. So why is this hypothetical statute interesting? What can we learn from it? Well, it's interesting because the framework that courts would use to analyze this statute is different from the framework that I think is necessary to draw convincing conclusions about the scope of state power. So courts would view this statute as uh, implicating four distinct constitutional problems. And those problems would be governed by four distinct silos of doctrine. 
So one silo considers choice of law under the due process and full faith and credit clauses. Another silo considers the dormant commerce clause implications of regulating emissions at out-of-state factories. Another silo focuses, focuses on interstate taxation under the dormant commerce clause and the due process clause. And another silo focuses on personal jurisdiction under the due process clause. So courts would say, we have one statute, four problems. We're going to have four parts to our opinion, looking at four completely different areas of law. But at a higher level of abstraction, there is only one issue. We can't see it because it's cloaked in different disguises. But if we peel away the disguises, we will find one common problem. All four sections of the statute can presume that Minnesota can reach out beyond its borders to assert power over non-residents whose conduct affects Minnesota. And all four sections presume that Minnesota's interest in reaching out overrides the conflicting interests of other states. And all four sections presume that Minnesota's interests override the interests of individuals or entities that are affected by these regulations. And just as all four sections uh, rely on similar presumptions, objections to these four sections all reduce to a single assertion. The assertion is that Minnesota has exceeded its authority as a co-equal state in the federal system. We can frame that objection in several ways, but they all lead to the same conclusion. So entities challenging the statute can complain about the lack of Minnesota, Minnesota's lack of sovereignty, or they can complain about the violation of rights belonging to non-residents, or they can complain about uh, disregard of federal preemption. In my parlance, they'd be raising arguments based on capacity, constraint, and centralization. But arguments based on sovereignty or rights or preemption are merely three paths to the same destination. And analyzing those paths require, no matter which path you take, you have to think about the way the Constitution balances state power, national power, and individual interests. And the only way to construct a coherent explanation of how that balancing process should play out in a particular context is to ask the question directly. So a court analyzing any section of my proposed uh, uh, hypothetical widget statute should ask something like, how do arguments about capacity, constraint, and centralization collectively produce a conclusion about what the Constitution requires? But that's not what courts will do. What courts will do is simplify the case by breaking the statute into its four components, separately analyzing each component, using bodies of law that don't refer to each other, and as we'll see in a moment, arguably conflict with each other. Now, you might wonder, why is this silo approach uh, so uh, troubling? Maybe we should just trust courts to muddle through by relying on distinct areas of doctrine rather than some multi-factor open-ended test. And I think the answer is that the current approach hasn't worked very well, and there's reasons to think it will continue to not work well, and reasons to think that replacing it could be productive. And let me give you one example uh, from one of my articles, which compared doctrine governing personal jurisdiction with doctrine governing state authority to collect sales taxes. So suppose in my hypothetical statute uh, about widgets that the Constitution allows Minnesota 
to require out-of-state sellers to collect and remit sales taxes. So a Minnesota resident goes on the internet, they buy something from a company in Arizona, it ships it to Minnesota, the company in Arizona will collect the sales tax and remit it to Minnesota, and that's constitutional. Minnesota can require that. Well, shouldn't it follow that if the seller doesn't comply with that obligation, Minnesota should be able to sue that seller in a court in Minnesota? And shouldn't personal jurisdiction over such suits be obvious? And if personal jurisdiction is not available, if it's not obvious that there's personal jurisdiction in that enforcement action, then courts would be saying that the Constitution allows the Minnesota legislature to impose an obligation that the Minnesota judiciary cannot enforce. And that seems odd. If sellers have enough contact with Minnesota to create a tax collection obligation, then they have enough contact with Minnesota to be held accountable for not complying with that obligation. But that's a syllogism that current law rejects. Legislative jurisdiction and adjudicative jurisdiction are not coextensive under current constitutional doctrine. And the reason that they're not coextensive is that the Supreme Court has not consistently deployed arguments about constraint and capacity. So in the tax context, the Supreme Court's decision in South Dakota versus Wayfair just a few years ago emphasizes state interests in regulating local economic activity. In other words, the state's capacity to act is a thumb on the scale in favor of the state's position. And that capacity makes the court skeptical of countervailing rights. But in the personal jurisdiction context, the court takes exactly the opposite approach. The court starts by emphasizing the importance of individual liberty. In other words, it emphasizes that constraints on state power are a thumb on the scale against the state's position. And in light of those constraints, the court is skeptical of state interests in providing a forum. And that skepticism is evident in many cases. Uh, I'll describe one, Colco versus Superior Court. In that case, a woman who resided in California sued her ex-husband for child support in a California court. And the ex-husband resided in New York, and he objected to personal jurisdiction, and the Supreme Court agreed. The Supreme Court held that California could not exercise personal jurisdiction over the ex-husband who resided in New York. And the court focused on the ex-husband's right, framed in terms of a right, to quote, uh, to avoid, quote, the substantial financial burden and personal strain of litigating a child support suit in a forum 3,000 miles away. Now, curiously, the majority never mentioned why the ex-wife, who had custody over the two children, was somehow better situated to bear the strain of travel. Just escaped the court's attention. In any event, having prioritized the ex-husband's liberty interests, the court dismissed California's countervailing interest in providing a forum as insufficient to render litigation in California fair. So as a result, California lacked the ability to force the ex-husband to fly 3,000 miles west, meaning that the ex-wife had to fly 3,000 miles east all because individual rights overrode state interests. So there's a very strange inconsistency in the case law. When the court considers the constitutionality of state taxes, it prioritizes state interests and is skeptical of individual rights. 
But when the court analyzes personal jurisdiction, it prioritizes individual rights and is skeptical of state interests. And that means that sometimes courts can law, uh, sometimes states can lawfully impose obligations that they can't locally enforce. And that implausible outcome is possible because the court doesn't think about tax authority and personal jurisdiction as manifestations of the same basic horizontal federalism problem. There are two distinct problems that have historically been treated differently, and they're governed by two distinct bodies of law that don't consult each other. Linking those silos of law could therefore improve decision-making. Now, better decision-making is not just an academic preference. It's not just some aesthetic value. The issues that I'm addressing have real-world consequences. So right now, today, the Supreme Court has cases on its docket that implicate horizontal federalism questions. And other cases are right around the corner, especially in the wake of Dobbs, as I'll get to in a second. So let me discuss three of these cases. First, in Mallory v. Norfolk Southern Railway, uh, which was argued in November, the court will decide whether states can condition um, a, a, a foreign corporation's right to do business in the state on the corporation's consent to personal jurisdiction. There's significant stakes associated with these statutes because it's obviously much easier to sue a corporation that is consented to jurisdiction in the state than to sue one that is not consented. And the case might require uh, the court to revisit its relative weighting of state and individual interests. But even if the case is decided on narrower grounds, future cases are likely to address the conflict between capacity arguments and constraint arguments. The court's granted certain six personal jurisdiction cases in the last 10 years, and more are on the horizon. In particular, the court has assiduously avoided the question of how the Constitution applies to contacts uh, that occur over the internet. It recognizes this as a problem and doesn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. At some point, uh, the court will have to address that question. And that eventual collision between modern technology and ancient standards uh, might be an opportune time to revisit doctrinal priorities. Second uh, case is National Pork Producers Council versus Ross, which was argued in October. Uh, that's an important case, both because it addressed, well, that case um, is about uh, a California law that prevents the local sale of pork derived from pigs that were housed in um, certain kinds of conditions, even if the pigs were raised in other states. And it's important both because these kinds of statutes exist all around the country uh, and because it has enabled every uh, uh, journalist who covers law to make every pig joke that they can possibly think of. And Whatever the court does, it will affect many different kinds of statutes. So in addition to statutes governing uh, livestock, uh, there's cases about egg production and how hens are treated. There's cases about out of state, uh, states attempting to regulate out-of-state manufacturing processes for consumer goods like vaping pens. Uh, it's not hard to imagine states uh, enacting statutes that say something like, if the defendant doesn't produce its product, uh, doesn't pay its workers a minimum wage, then it can't sell the products they make in our state or if the defendant is contributing to global, or the manufacturer is contributing to global climate change, it can't sell its products in our state. So uh, many implications to uh, the Ross decision when it comes down. And it will be interesting, therefore, to see if the court modernizes its approach to capacity and constraint arguments. Right now, as I indicated before, the law uh, by and large relies on this very formal idea of state borders constraining state power. That doesn't really get you from a question to an answer. 
uh, because uh, uh, just folk, many different kinds of regulations have spillover effects. And so we'll see if the court modernizes its approach to extraterritoriality. Uh, and finally, last year, the Supreme Court decided Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which overruled Roe v. Wade. And as you know, many states responded uh, to Dobbs by restricting access to abortion services, while such services remain legal and available in other states. And that conflict between state laws will create numerous horizontal federalism problems. For example, consider seven hypothetical scenarios which soon uh, might not be hypothetical. So one, a state prosecutes a resident for obtaining an abortion in another state where abortion is legal. Two, a state prosecutes an out-of-state doctor for using the internet to advertise abortion services to local residents. Three, a state prosecutes an out-of-state bank for processing payments from state residents for abortion services. Four, a state prohibits any insurance company that reimburses abortion costs anywhere in the country from doing business in the regulating state with the hope of convincing insurance companies to simply stop covering abortion services nationwide. Five, a state prohibits any entity incorporated in the state from operating out-of-state subsidiaries that facilitate abortion. So for example, a hospital system incorporated in a state where, where abortion is illegal would be unable to have a branch in another state that offers abortion services. Six, a state authorizes its courts to adjudicate civil, dispute, uh, civil suits against out-of-state doctors, hospitals, insurance companies, and banks that allegedly undermine local anti-abortion laws, and the state empowers any concerned citizen to file suits under that provision and to enforce any default judgment obtained against the defendant who doesn't appear by going after any assets the defendant has in the forum. And seventh, a state bans the importation of medicine that is approved by the FDA, but that can be used to cause an abortion. All of these scenarios will raise at least three questions. Does the state have capacity to act? Does the targeted individual or entity have a right that constrains state capacity? And does federal law preempt state capacity? And the question of how to integrate capacity, constraint, and centralization arguments will therefore be critically important. Likewise, the ability of lawyers and judges to analogize these problems, the, the seven scenarios I, I outlined and more, to other kinds of horizontal federalism problems will also be critically important. Now, standing here today, I don't know how the court will approach these questions. But what I can say is that the existing silo-based approach to horizontal federalism that the judiciary employs is likely to be unhelpful and arbitrary. So with that glimpse of where we're heading, uh, I hope you found this discussion of horizontal federalism interesting. I hope that you have some sense uh, of how centralization, constraint, capacity arguments uh, will play out in the, uh, in the future. And I appreciate you coming. Uh, thank you for listening. And I very much look forward to your questions. I have a microphone, so if you want to raise your hand, if you have a question for Professor Erbson. And start. 
So, um, you know, generations of law students spend the, spend their time in first year learning some of the different silos that you're talking about. Um, what's the role of um, the way we teach law, the way clients need services done for them, the way clerks and courts approach these cases in reinforcing some of these silos you described, right? So, I mean, you, you, you touched on this. I know you've written more about it in the articles that you're, you're referring to, but um, tell us a little bit more about why silos happen like this in ways that you think have these deleterious effects across the different ones. Well, I'm tempted to blame Langdell, but that would be an oversimplification, right? So Christopher Columbus Langdell was the dean of Harvard Law School, wrote the first in 18-something, wrote the first law school casebook. Um, and so is at least partly responsible for the way we conceptualize the law when we communicate it to students. Uh, but I think there's probably many forces that would be pushing in that direction. As I said, if, if you just sort of came here, sat in a room, and said, and we said, we're going to just tell you about law, it would be overwhelming. We have to break it down into pieces so that you can begin to understand the nuances of particular areas of doctrine. So I think law school, it's inevitable that law schools are going to siloize. They have to. Likewise, in order to competently teach law, you have to be a specialist in a particular area. So professors are going to siloize. I'm glad that you raised client counseling, because let's go back to my Dobbs scenarios. If you are a doctor in Minnesota, and you are worried about what is happening in, say, Texas, you don't want a lawyer who is an expert in personal jurisdiction. You don't want a lawyer who is an expert in um, uh, health law. You want a lawyer who is an expert in how the Constitution protects non-residents of states from state power and the eight or nine different manifestations of that risk that the client is facing, right? So clients, especially non-lawyers, they don't care that their problem is a tort problem or a property problem or this problem. They just have a problem and they need an answer. And often the answer draws from many different disciplines. Likewise, judge, it's, it's actually kind of interesting that judges rely on these silos because when judges write opinions, they're not constrained by the kind of curricular division of constitutional law into different subfields, right? They're just writing opinions. Uh, and the opinions can pinball around uh, from field to field if they want it to, and sometimes they do. Um, but I think the desire for consistent results causes courts to reduce their inquiries to sort of, you know, these repeatable multi-factor tests. Like, this is personal jurisdiction, and every personal jurisdiction case will answer, will address questions one, two, and three. This is a tax case, and every tax case will address questions one, two, three. Uh, not horizontal federalism is super complicated, so let's just rebalance everything um, in every new case that has any unique permutation. So I think that's a little bit what's going on, right? Lawyers are looking for broad guidance Judges are kind of in the middle, and in the academy, we tend to focus on very discrete areas of law. Those seem to be the different pressures. I'll go next. Thanks, Alan. It's great. Um, great talk. My question um, relates to your overall theme of why this matters. And I'm wondering if you've been able to identify, in general terms, who who would be helped and who would be hurt in terms of categories of litigants, types of, uh, types of individuals or um, entities, if your approach were adopted? I mean, 
I think you're arguing that the legal system in general would be helped because we'd have clearer decisions, maybe we'd have more efficient and consistent decisions. But in terms of incentivizing the approach that you're talking about, what's going to make lawyers for certain kinds of plaintiffs, for example, uh, argue for the approach that, that you're advocating? Um, in other words, because it's got to be incentivized for lawyers to make the arguments and judges to adopt it, right? Right. Otherwise, it's 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 simply theory. But but if it's going to be utilized in practice, who's going to benefit and who's going to be hurt? I think different silos of law currently are skewed for and against plaintiffs and defendants. And so, the closer you bring those silos, the more you eliminate that skewing. But it's going to but de-skewing will have different effects in different areas of law. So personal jurisdiction law currently is weighted in favor of defendants, right? Think of Kolka, right? There's things defendants can say that aren't super plausible, but enable them to escape accountability in the states where they're sued. So rethinking personal jurisdiction might eliminate the ability of defendants to rely on those kinds of constraint arguments, making it easier for plaintiffs to sue entities that don't have a strong connection to the state. Choice of law is currently skewed the other way. States can apply their substantive law virtually without limitation. Allstate v. Hague holds that. Um, and so if one revisited choice of law, one might slightly amplify constraints on state regulatory authority. Uh, when you're dealing with the right to travel, it's interesting. There's a number of scholars who have written articles saying, obviously, under current law, states cannot prevent their citizens from leaving the state to do something that's legal somewhere else. And other scholars have written articles that said, essentially, obviously, states can do this. So current law isn't really skewed one way or the other because there's just not a whole lot of precedent because states actually haven't attempted to do this. When the stakes are high enough, as they are now post-Dobbs, at least one and possibly many states will do this. Um, and so we'll essentially be fighting on a clean slate. And my argument is, well, let's, let's have this debate on a clean slate using principles that are actually defensible rather than arbitrarily you know, picking and choosing which silos of doctrine we want to apply. Uh, because the more, the more judges are able to arbitrarily select the rules that they think are relevant, the more the outcome is going to conform to the judge's priors. Right? And that could be a concern in particular areas of law. So the more that you can convince judges, you know, whatever you may intuitively think should happen, we have rules, and those rules act as a constraint on discretion, that could be valuable. Hi. Um, so I'm kind of wondering if the issue of cannabis in Colorado and how you know, a state like Minnesota, more like North Dakota, I'm originally from North Dakota, um, could be analogous at all to the travel issue that is coming up in abortion. And have we seen any sort of case that did penalize someone for leaving the state and potentially, you know, buying or, you know, using cannabis in, a, in Colorado and being prosecuted in their home state where it's illegal? Has anything of that type come up? And like, where is the case law in the travel to do something illegal in one state? Where is it right now? Right. There's two complications um, in the cannabis case. Complication number one is technically it's not, let's imagine you have one state that's legalized uh, uh, the purchase of cannabis. 
In the other state that hasn't, you not only have state law, but you have federal law. And historically, the federal government has continued to prosecute. And that's an issue that you don't see in, let's say, the abortion cases, because there's no federal law prohibiting access to abortion. And second is as much sort of uh, cannabis legalization is obviously politicized, but not to the same extent as other issues. And so states that have declined to legalize haven't necessarily felt pressure to also go after their citizens who leave the state, uh, go somewhere else, do something that's legal in that state, and come back. Part of it's a problem of proof. It'd be very difficult to, to prosecute these people. So I'm not aware of prosecutions. I think there have been uh, prosecutions of people who have gone to a state where cannabis is legal, purchased it, and then brought it back. Um, and that now they're in possession of a substance they're not allowed to have in their home state. But if consumption occurs entirely in the other state, I haven't seen prosecutions. That doesn't mean they haven't happened. Uh, but this is not sort of high on the enforcement priorities of state attorney generals uh, in the way that they're sort of motivated to act on some of these other issues. We can take one more question, and then we have that reception Auerbach Commons where you can continue to ask Alan some questions. Anyone else? No one wants to stand in the way of reception. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a hand? No. All right, well, thank you so much uh, for those questions uh, and for coming, and I will be at the reception, so I'm happy to talk to people um, while we're up there. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.